0: All right, welcome back to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And just to put it in context, we're at the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. It's probably the year 57. 57. And it's springtime, which means it's holiday season for Paul. He celebrated the Passover with Luke and his friends in the congregation in Philippi. His teammates have already sailed across the Aegean, and they're waiting for him at Troas. And Paul's goal is now to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so from Philippi, he and Luke traveled across the North Aegean to Troas as well, where they met back up with the rest of the team. And after spending a week there and doing some preaching there, meeting with the church there in Troas, his team and him have been traveling south uh, along the coast by boat. They've sailed past Ephesus and they've stopped at Miletus. And that's where this section picks up. And so Acts chapter 21, verse 17 says, and from Miletus... Paul sent word to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church. And so Paul had sailed past Ephesus largely because he's traveling in a hurry and he wants to make it uh, to Jerusalem by Pentecost. But he didn't want to not have any contact with the church at Ephesus because he had spent so much time there and he was so connected there. And it was such a central church having such a massive regional impact. And so he stops at Miletus. And he calls for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. We have no record in Acts or uh, elsewhere, for that matter, of Paul appointing the elders in Ephesus. And that just reminds us that this seems to have been a common practice. We saw him do this on the first missionary journey. Um, and since then, there's not been a specific mention of it. But obviously, he has been appointing elders since there are elders here at the church at Ephesus. So he, so he calls them to come to him at uh, Miletus. What that entails, since we're in this day and age, not our day and age, means he has to send somebody from Miletus to Ephesus, get the elders, and they have to come back. So we're talking about a several-day venture just to get the elders of the church to meet him at Miletus. Um, And so apparently, in his planning, he figured that was better than just stopping at Ephesus and then sailing on, probably because there was so much So many people there, so much connection. There had been hostility when he left. He just figured this was the safest course of action. So he sends a runner to Ephesus. They they gather the elders. The elders then comes back to Miletus where they meet with him. And Paul is going to give really an encouragement and an exhortation to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And so what we get in verses 18 and following is the fifth recorded speech of Paul's in the book of Acts. Uh, And it is the only speech that's directed to Christians in the book of Acts. And so we get to hear something similar to how Paul would speak to Christians as we see in his letters. Here's what he says, verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, and he's going to begin his message by recounting his time with them and Really, kind of what he's anticipating as he moves forward. And so he says this He says, You yourselves know that from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And so he starts with just re having them call back to mind his time with them and how he was there for a long time, the whole time, which was about two and a half years. And he describes his time there as serving the Lord and serving the Lord with humility, which means lowliness. He didn't exalt himself, right? He didn't you know take control of things. He served with humility, with tears. And so there was uh, suffering and tears and heartache, right? Trials. And so he was with them through all of this, which came upon him, he says, through the plots of the Jews who were out to stop his ministry and out to stop what he was doing there, at least that was at the heart of it. We know also from Acts 19, there was the whole silversmith riot at the end of all of that. And so he recalls his time with them. And then he describes his ministry like this, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was beneficial and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fascinating little description of Paul's time there because it gives us this insight that Paul taught, notice, both publicly and from house to house. Publicly, the school of Tyrannus, out in the city marketplace, right, or in public sectors, large group gatherings of lots of people. That's publicly. But then also meeting with groups of Christians from house to house there in the city of Ephesus. And so, he was teaching both publicly and from house to house he says he didn't declare he didn't shrink back from declaring anything that was useful beneficial profitable and he describes it as solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards god so turning back towards god which is fascinating right like particularly for the Jews repentance towards god you're turning back towards him and faith in Our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that phrase, because it's very much like Paul sounds in his letters. This is a common way he describes Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that Christ is a title for Jesus. It means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. And so he is the anointed one. That is anointed as king. And Lord uh, is... um, really the, the Greek equivalent in the Septuagint for uh, not just Adonai, Lord, but also for Yahweh. And so he is the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the King. And Paul called Jews and Greeks to submit to his kingship, to submit to his lordship. And that's what repentance towards God would look like in the case of Paul's ministry and Paul's preaching. And then Paul looks, kind of forecasts the future a tiny bit, saying, here's where I'm at. And this is why I'm, I'm I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. So he forecasts the future a little bit uh, in verse 22 and following. He says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies solemnly to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. And so this little forecast is uh, somewhat ominous and somewhat solemn, right? Like, man, that doesn't sound good. And so he says, bound by the Spirit, and that could be bound in his own personal spirit. Bound in spirit is literally how it reads. So it could mean, like, in my own spirit, I am compelled to go to Jerusalem. Or it could be bound by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. This particular translation here takes it that way. And I think that's probably the best understanding that it is the Holy Spirit. Frequently, when Paul speaks this way, that's what he means it's God's own Spirit. He's uh, really compelled by God's Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So he believes God's Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem. That seems to be the sense here in verse 22. And so he's on his way there to Jerusalem. And he doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there, except that even though he believes the Spirit is leading him to Jerusalem, the Spirit also is solemnly testifying to him everywhere he goes. He says in every city. So on this trip along the way from Philippi to Troas, right, and down the coast as we've been following, and even though it hasn't always been recorded, uh, what Paul says here is that the Spirit is solemnly testifying in every city, saying that chains And afflictions await me. And so that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's been given this foreboding warning from the Spirit that bondage is what awaits him in Jerusalem. How does he respond to that? Well, look at verse 24. He says, But I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So, that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of God's grace. So, how does he respond to this foreboding sense that uh, chains and afflictions await him in Jerusalem? Well, he responds by saying, Hey, look. I want to finish my course. I don't consider my life of any account. Literally, when he says of any account, it's literally, I don't consider my life worth a single word. That's sort of the idea. Like, my life isn't worth a single word as dear to myself. It's not my own. And this really, you, you when you read, for example, like Philippians chapter 3, Paul says the same sorts of things like He has one great desire in Philippians 3, to know Christ. And as he looks forward, he just wants to finish the race, right? Like, um, I don't look back, but I press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is really how Paul views his life. And you see that here. He doesn't consider his life worth one word as dear to himself so that he might finish his course, he says, finish my course, meaning he views his life as a definite course, a definite race, or a definite course um, with a specific aim and a specific goal. Uh, and he says, not just my course, but also and the ministry, the deaconias, the word translated ministry, from which we get our English word deacon. It's the 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 specific task that he's been appointed to carry out on another's behalf. That's the idea of diaconia. Sometimes it was an assistant. Sometimes it was, uh, you know, like a surgical assistant. Sometimes it was a politician's assistant. Like he's been entrusted with a specific task on behalf of another person. That's his ministry. That's what that word means. It's service to another by carrying out a specific task for them. And His services on behalf of the Lord Jesus. He's received it from Jesus himself. This is the task he's been given. And he summarizes that task as testifying solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. That's the ministry and the course he's been given. That's the aim of his life. He's been entrusted with that task to make sure he preaches the good news of God's grace that's found in Jesus. So in view of this warning and in view of what he 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 has the sense that he's walking into, Paul then says this to uh, the elders there from Ephesus in verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. In other words, this is the last time we're going to actually get to see each other. Now, we don't know whether this was totally the case because Paul's plans didn't go exactly as he wanted. His original thought was to sail to Jerusalem, be there for a little bit. Then he wants to go to Rome, spend a little time with the church in Rome, and then set up camp in Rome and use that as a base of operations to the western Mediterranean. It just didn't work out that way for Paul. He is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to get to Rome, but he's going to end up there as a prisoner. And as best as we can tell from Uh, reconstructions from particularly 1 Timothy and Titus and some of that, it seems like that after he got out of that imprisonment, he ended up, instead of going uh, all the way to the west, he ended up coming back this direction to the east. So he may have seen these guys again. But right now, um, he's pretty confident he won't because his plan is to move his ministry to the western Mediterranean and be done in this region. And then he says in verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all people for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so when he says, look, I don't know that I'm ever going to see you again, so I want you to know however that that I feel like I've completed my ministry here. I've I've preached to you guys. I'm innocent of the blood of all people. Why? Well, he explains in verse 27 because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I've preached to you everything that God called me to speak, and I've I've shrunk back from nothing. I've spoken the whole thing to you. And so he feels good about the ministry that he did in and among them and really good about his whole ministry in the Western or the Eastern Mediterranean world. And so he feels like it's time for him to move on, and he wants to move his operation to the West. Um, Now, before he finishes his speech, however he has a charge to the elders. In view of the fact that he doesn't think he's going to see them again, in view of the fact that he feels like his ministry among them is complete, he has a charge for the elders there in Ephesus. And here it is, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so his charge to them is for them to protect the church. He calls the church here, the flock using this imagery that was common in the Old Testament for God's people under the old covenant, the people of Israel, like they were um, God's flock and God was their shepherd, right? Or uh, the king was the shepherd of God's flock, the people. That was the idea. And so using this imagery of sheep and shepherd had been common among uh, the Jews as a way to think about themselves as the people of God. So Paul takes that imagery and he's now applies it to the church here that you guys are, are your churches are the flock and you guys are like the shepherds. But notice in doing that, He uses two words in addition to the word elder. He's already called for the elders of the church, but notice he uses the word overseer, which um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul gives instructions on uh, elders and the kind of character they're supposed to have, he uses the same word, overseers, and he uses it here. Uh, Overseers, it's a word that, in older translations, got translated bishop, and that's the reason in certain um, branches of the church they have bishops. That actually derives from this word overseer, but the word overseer is better translated as overseer than bishop. Bishop sounds like just an exclusively religious word. This word wasn't a religious word. It just meant a word for somebody who was put in charge of watching over other people, watching over an organization, watching over a group of people. That's the idea of overseer. Um, it really describes one of the tasks of people who are in charge of a group of people or uh, a group of workers or something like that. So they are Overseers. They watch over and care for. And then he says uh, that the Holy Spirit is the one that's made you overseers. Ultimately, the Spirit is responsible um, for appointing overseers. And so they're accountable to the Spirit for their behavior and for their actions. And they are supposed to shepherd the church of God. So their oversight is further described as shepherding God's church. And that word shepherd. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that word in the uh, noun form is translated pastor, where it describes uh, pastors and teachers. God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Well, the word translated pastor there is simply the noun form for the word to shepherd here. And so what we get here in Acts chapter 21 is we get... All three of the main words for the leaders of the church used in one context. You get elders, overseers, and pastors, shepherds, um, as the words that describe the body of people who oversee, watch over, care for, who are in charge of, uh, humanly speaking at least, in charge of taking care of the church. That's important for us to realize because these three words um, in sort of later church history and oftentimes in our church context are used in different ways, but they're not used in different ways in the New Testament. Elders, bishops slash overseers, pastors slash shepherds, that all refers to the same group of people in the New Testament. And so the elders um, are supposed to be on guard um, over the church, watch over the church, protect it. Why? Well, they're supposed to be on guard for the church because, Paul says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, extending the sheep and shepherd imagery, right? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there's going to be people from the outside, and Paul uses the imagery of wolves like with Uh, real wolves coming in and attacking real sheep. Well, let's extend that metaphor further. So there's going to be people outside the church that are going to act like savage wolves, and they're going to come in and attack the church, attack God's people to, uh, right, like to take away and take down the the stragglers of the flock, the weak to the flock, the young in the flock. So you got to be on guard for those people. And then not only that, but notice verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after him. And so you get savage wolves from the outside, but you're also going to get people who come from within and who become false teachers. They speak perverse things and they try to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul's convinced that this is what you're going to have to be on guard because this is what's going to happen. Uh, that there are going to be outsiders who try to destroy it and insiders who twist the truth to their own advantage and speak perverse, twisted things with the express goal of drawing the disciples away after them. So because of that, in verse 31 then, Paul restates this: the, the, the challenge, the task that's before them. Therefore, be on the alert, right? You got to keep your eyes open. You got to watch. You got to be vigilant, For these savage wolves, be on the alert. And then he really, once again, recalls his example of how he did this. Remembering that he says, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And Paul, in other words, pouring out his heart. Fully invested in making sure that they knew the truth and um, warning them and instructing them and teaching them with tears when necessary, and that he gave himself to helping them learn the way of Jesus and stay faithful to him. So he really calls to mind his example that they're supposed to imitate. uh, As now the leaders of the church in his absence, they've got to follow his example, pouring themselves out, admonishing and instructing and teaching and guarding after the church. And so he says in verse 32, and now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so Paul is entrusting them to God and to God's care, to God's leadership, to God's oversight, right to God's protection, to God's strength, and so He's entrusting them to God uh, and to the Word of His grace. And to the, in other words, the teaching about the gospel of grace. I'm um, entrusting you to that. Um, And that word of grace is able to build you up. That word of grace is able to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Looking forward to the great inheritance that is uh, for the people of God. In fact, Paul, at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, which he writes in just a few short years, He uses similar imagery uh, that looking forward to the inheritance that that's promised to us as the people of God. And so I'm entrusting you to the word of his grace, which is able to strengthen you, build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Sanctified comes from the same word as the word holy, and it means set apart as holy. And so it means set apart positionally as belonging to God, but also sanctified as in the process of becoming holy, that you belong to God and you are being made holy uh, increasingly and progressively by him through his spirit. And so as those who are set apart as God's people, I'm entrusting you to the word of God's grace and to God's care to watch over you. He says, I, verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I didn't do this. I didn't give um, my time and my energy. I didn't pour myself out for you because it was a money-making venture for me. I didn't do this to get rich, right? Like Paul is saying, I I wasn't greedy in doing this. In fact, he says, you know, you yourselves know. He lived among them, right? They knew him like face to face. You yourselves know that these hands, uh, his own hands served my own needs And the men who were with me. Uh, And this, as we've noted before, seems to have been Paul's regular practice: that he he uh, would not take money, at least this was his normal practice, he wouldn't take money and room and board from churches when he first was there planting the church. The exception seems to be the church at Philippi, because Lydia just Insisted on it, and so he did. But by and large, his regular practice was um, he would take an offering from churches that w- he had already planted, and now he was no longer there. But from that place where he was at, he worked for his own room and board uh, as often as he did. We know he did that at Corinth. Uh, we know he did that in Thessalonica. Uh, he says here that he did it in Ephesus. And so he made sure he worked with his hands and uh, took care of the needs of his own people so that he couldn't be accused of taking people's money and running. He never knew how long he'd be in town, and he wanted to give them an example, and that's where he turns to next. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, he mentions this, that I did this to be an example to you of how important it is to work hard and not be a mooch. And so he says in verse 35, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he worked hard as a way to to provide for the weak and the needy. um, And as really following the pattern of Jesus, who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This particular statement of Jesus is found in none of the gospels. And so this is one of those sayings of Jesus Um, that wasn't recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, but it was well known to the early followers of Jesus. And so Paul quotes it here. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so with that, Paul wraps up his message to the elders at the church of Ephesus. And so what we get then in verses 36 through 38 is a tearful goodbye. Uh, And so verse 36 is, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And so all of the elders together, wherever they're meeting at and gathered at, they kneel down together. I picture them sort of in a circle together, all gathered together, kneeling down, and prayed with them all. Paul pours out his heart in prayer with these leaders. And verse 37, they all began to weep aloud. And so notice this, this emotional, tearful goodbye. They're weeping aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him goodbye. Standard Middle Eastern kiss of greeting, hugging and uh, kiss of farewell or greeting and weeping. Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And so there's this prayer-filled and tear-filled and heartfelt goodbye as they hug and they kiss and they pray together and they say goodbye to each other and uh, they're especially saddened because of they don't anticipate that they're ever going to see paul again so they say goodbye and then um, this section ends by saying and they were accompanying him to a ship and so they they wherever they met they've said their goodbyes they've prayed and they walk with paul to the ship to send him off on his journey. Now, before we totally leave this section, let me just offer this one little reflection. There's probably several things we could say out of this section. But as I look at Paul's description of his ministry, I look at his charge to the elders at Ephesus. I look at um, the way Paul pours himself out for them. uh, what What strikes me is that church leadership, whether... Um, vocational or voluntary that the the uh, the responsibility the sacred trust of overseeing and caring for God's people whether it's because you get paid to do it as a a preacher or youth minister or whatever it is, whether you're a voluntary one as an elder or maybe even over a whole kids ministry or a youth program, and you're entrusted with the care of these young people, these adults, right? That responsibility is a serious and sober responsibility uh, to be on guard for uh, people and ideas and things that would lead disciples, when disciples are individual people, young men and women, um, older men and women, disciples to lead them away from faithfulness to Jesus. And so the call to care for God's people in any sort of capacity is really a call to work hard for the faithfulness of God's people, to help them be faithful, to pour yourself out night and day, to pray for them, to teach them, to warn them, to instruct them, right? Like to to be on guard against influences and forces that would lead them away from their faithfulness to Jesus. And so the call to care for and lead God's people is really a call to work hard for the faithfulness of God's people.